This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. The recent relocation exercise at the end of July, which involved contract doctors being given permanent positions and being relocated to various healthcare facilities across the country, has been generating headlines because of the significant impact that it has had on the provision of healthcare services in these facilities. Now, while some states like Sabah and Sarawak are reported to have gained more medical officers, we've also heard that other major hospitals, particularly around the Klang Valley, are facing a net loss of trained medical officers. And this is a gap that the health minister, Dr. Zaleha Mustafa, says will be filled by December at the latest. Now, joining me on the show today to discuss how these relocations are affecting both doctors and patient care is Dr. Sivabala Selvaratnam, Vice Chairman of MMA's section concerning house officers, medical officers and specialists, also known as SCOMOS. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Siva. Thank you for having me on your show, Sue Ann. Pleasure to have you on to discuss this very um, important topic, one that is has been sort of making the headlines, uh, making the news for weeks now. Um, I want to start by understanding the problem here a bit, right? Um, what has MMA heard from doctors about the problems that they have faced or are still facing as a result of the relocation? And maybe we can start with what you've heard from doctors who have been relocated. Thanks for that question. Um, as we know, the MMA being the oldest and largest association representing all Malaysian doctors has naturally been keeping abreast of these uh, grouses. Uh, one just has to look at social media platforms mm-hmm. to get an idea of the gravity of this issue. And uh, coming to your loaded question about the perspective of doctors, uh, having to be abruptly relocated is definitely a harrowing experience. On paper, it looks like only the doctors themselves are affected. However, in reality, it is the entire community around them. Mm-hmm. Broadly speaking, Suen, we could classify it into socioeconomic as well as career progression factors. Coming to the social factors, for example, those married with children, they have to work out a plan to keep the family together at such short notice. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, then they'll need to work out childcare arrangements. Even for those who are single, Mm -hmm. they are still part of their extended families. And then we have the economic factor. An abrupt relocation is a huge financial burden, no matter whom we are speaking about, whether doctors or otherwise. Easily more than a month's salary, for example, those who have purchased a house are now forced to continue paying mortgage and continue renting elsewhere. Mm. And uh, most rental agreements, we would know, uh, require a notice period of at least two months prior to moving out, two to three months perhaps. And therefore, those renting will effectively forfeit one month's rental fees from the previous uh, unit due to the tenancy agreement. Mm -hmm. And then there's the uh, scramble to find rental units in the new location. And finally, we come to career progression factors, regardless of whether the doctors are in training, uh, in a training program or not. They are effectively being trained on the job in their particular fields. Mm -hmm. Example, those in a surgical department previously could very well now be filling gaps in a medical department, according to their new posting. And... uh, In a nutshell, medical expertise is not transferable in this manner. 
that is the conundrum then. Mm, because if I'm not mistaken, these medical officers that have been moved, if you could um, just clarify a bit, Dr. Siva, these are medical officers that have been trained for five to seven years, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. All right. Um, but these are, we're talking about the people who have moved, but there's also the impact of the doctors, the healthcare workers who have been left behind to cope with the deficit as well. What have you heard from that um, group of healthcare workers? All right. Uh, Sue Ann, yeah. In one word to describe that group now, mm-hmm. it, it would be burnout. Mm-hmm. And I would like to draw your attention to a publication by Public Health Malaysia mm-hmm. back in June. July 2019. It's based on an announcement by uh, Jabatan Audit Negara. Mm-hmm. So not a small survey, but rather the national audit team itself. The publication was titled Hospital Tenat, and mm-hmm. you could Google this, Hospital Tenat, and revealed that about 41.3% of patients waited for about six hours at the emergency department before receiving treatment due to a lack of budget, staff, and facilities. And most alarmingly, one, to, one in three doctors experienced burnout. Our then DG, uh, Tan Sri Datu Sri Nur Hisham Abdullah, had stated on his Facebook posting uh, in July of 2019 that we are currently underfunded, understaffed, underpaid, overworked, overstretched, and with overcrowded patients. Mm-hmm. Um, just to cut it off at that point. And this was just over four years ago and pre-pandemic. To be clear, the redistribution of doctors out of the Klang Valley to, mm-hmm. to East Malaysia and other non-central uh, peninsula states is a step in the right direction. However, the manner in which it was carried out could have been handled uh, more appropriately. Mm. Um, quite a few things for us to unpack here. If we first look at the 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 impact of moving these trained medical officers out from the Klang Valley. Now we know that a lot of the big hospitals, the tertiary hospitals here, act as um, referral centers for clinic kesihatans for other hospitals, um, district hospitals across the country. Um, and I've read that you know places like Hospital Sungai Buloh, Hospital Serdang, Hospital Selayang, all are seeing a net deficit of um, medical officers. Maybe you could highlight a bit how important is it that we have sufficient healthcare workers in these tertiary hospitals and the role that they play as referral centres? Right. So the central role that uh, tertiary hospitals play is that they provide not just specialised care mm-hmm. to our patients, but also sub-specialised care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, in a department like uh, obstetrics and gynecology, you have uh, four divisions of subspecialty, uh, ranging from uh, infertility care to maternal fetal medicine and urogynecology, as well as gynae oncology. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, when these hospitals are short-staffed, patient care is compromised as waiting times are naturally increased. The health services will then need uh, to have... Um, they would need to prioritize cases that concern life and limb, meaning emergencies. Um, does that make sense? I mean, mm. so the service provision is disrupted because of a shortage of staff. So that's what's going to be faced by these um, tertiary centers that you had mentioned. And already patients are waiting so long, patients already have so little time with their doctors sometimes. That's going to further affect patient care, isn't it? 
Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And quality of care as well mm-hmm. tends to go down because when the time spent with uh, during your consultation goes down because of the overload, then quality of care mismanagement, so on and so forth. Mm. I mean, that is short-term impact, but do you think that we could potentially see long-term impact um, as a result of a um, decrease in quality and quantity of care, especially considering Malaysia is already facing a very high health burden when we talk about NCDs, um, things like that? So longer-term impact would be an exacerbation of burnout that I stated earlier amongst mm-hmm. uh, doctors, leading to higher rates of resignation, exacerbating the trust deficit in the Ministry of Health as a, rel- as a reliable uh, healthcare provider. So um, short-term, of course, we have longer waiting times, a minefield of misdiagnosis as well as misdiagnosis, meaning wrong diagnosis, mismanagement of patients, delay of treatment, inadvertently increasing costs given that it's cheaper to treat in the early phase of any disease compared to at a later presentation, Mm -hmm. and as well as a delay in um, elective surgeries. Mm -hmm. And uh, this would then put a strain on our emergency departments as well as our clinic kesihatans or health clinics because uh, patients would then look at these avenues, emergency department and uh, health clinics as point of contact treatment Mm. for a simple cough and flu, which they do not need to congest um, emergency department. But because clinic kesihatans are being overwhelmed during office hours, they wait for after office hours to go to the emergency department. Mm. Um, I, that's it's it's really hard to imagine because already we're we're already seeing this sort of um burden of of an overstrained healthcare system, right? Um, but I guess to talk a bit on the flip side, Doctor Siva, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's a good thing that we see some hospitals in East Malaysia, some KKs over there that are receiving additional MOs. That's something that um that medical organizations like MMA, um, doctors, um, politicians have said that we've we've needed this additional resource of uh, manpower over in East Malaysia. Um, How might having this net um, improvement of um, medical officers there improve healthcare services that they can provide? Right. So services could possibly be extended to the areas that were not previously covered by Mm -hmm. medical doctors, Mm -hmm. meaning there is improved patient accessibility to medical services in rural areas, Mm -hmm. Uh, which in turn then waiting times to see a doctor are reduced, Uh, optimal time is spent with the patients and quality of care improves. Um, And I'm not sure if uh, you have heard of this, but uh, uh, throughout the country, there apparently is a shortage of house officers. Mm. And therefore, the addition of medical officers may temporarily complement the shortage of uh, house officers being experienced in hospitals uh, throughout the country mm. so the so in but but the the shortage of house officers is also something that will need to be addressed isn't it definitely yes mm. what impact might we see i mean medical officers we're talking about trained um healthcare professionals with house officers what are the concerns there when we have a shortage of of that cohort as well uh well there are two schools of uh, thought here because mm-hmm. On, on the one side, some believe that um, house officers are there to learn mm-hmm. and are not a pair of extra hands. Mm. 
Um, so whether or not a house officer is there, the system should still be able to sustain itself. Having said that, um, house officers are getting paid as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last time I heard, uh, no one gets uh, paid to learn something. Um, so uh, house officers are crucial because they are then the future medical officers. Mm-hmm. So if there's a shortage of house officers, then there is a disruption in services meaning uh, there's going to be a gap uh, in human resource and staffing. And uh, house officers have, you know, when they come in, they are learning on the job and they then transition to be medical officers. They do not download a program overnight and become medical officers. It's it's a journey mm-hmm. of, of about two years long. Mm. All right. Um, We'll go for a quick break now, Dr. Siva, and continue this discussion. When we come back on the show with me today is Dr. Siva Balasalvaratnam, Vice Chairman of MMA SCOMOS. He's joining me on the show to discuss the recent news about um, the relocation of medical officers across the country. We're talking about the impact of hospitals gaining medical officers and hospitals losing medical officers. So we'll come back after a quick break to talk about what we can do to prevent um, something like this happening at the scale again in the future. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on Health and Living, PFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And on the show with me today is Dr. Siva Balasalvaratnam, Vice Chairman of MMA SCOMOS. That's the section concerning house officers, medical officers and specialists. And as his designation suggests, we are, on, um, we are talking about the recent relocation exercise involving contract doctors being given permanent posts. And as a result of that, many of them have also been relocated from um, the hospitals, the clinic kesehatans that they are based in now to those in other states. Um, that's been causing quite the problem because um, of the abrupt nature of it, because of the impact that it could have on patient care and do- doctor's training, as we were discussing um, before the break. Um, Dr. Siva, before we get on to the solutions, right, I want to talk a bit about why this is happening because um, maybe you could enlighten us a bit. Why have this? Why did the doctors need to be relocated in the first place? Um, why not just give them permanent positions in the hospitals that they were already at? Right. Interesting question. Um, so the relocation was, was definitely uh, targeted to fill a gap in service. Mm. It's service provision, right? So we do know that there are areas such as East Malaysia and um, the non-central regions of Peninsular Malaysia where mm-hmm. there is a shortage. Mm. And uh, when there is a shortage, there definitely needs to be an exercise of uh, relocation. And generally, when you uh, request some uh, um, a doctor in government service to relocate, there tends to be resistance. Mm. Why? Because as human beings, we are all quite averse to change. We are all in our comfort zones, right? So when you need to relocate, I suppose the ministry found it prudent to time it along with the promotion exercise, mm-hmm. which is the case for senior doctors as well. Usually mm. when senior doctors are given a JUSA position, for example, then they are said that, okay, we are giving you the JUSA position, but you need to go on a transfer. Mm. So likewise, our contract doctors are now given a permanent position. But as I said, it's a step in the right direction. But the, the manner in which it was done, 
uh, could have been tweaked a little. Mm. So right now, these decisions are being made um, by KKM at the federal level. We've had discussions of decentralization on and off over the past decade. Um, how do you think might decentralizing these decisions on human resources to state authorities, perhaps, instead of a federal um, body, how might that influence how these decisions are made? Uh, decentralizing is a brilliant concept, Suen. Mm -hmm. uh, let's look at the NHS for a moment, shall we? Mm -hmm. In the NHS, which is the National Health Service in the UK, staffing needs are determined at the hospital level, meaning they are based on the bed occupancy rates or workload at that given hospital. Everything is properly audited and transparency is vital and data-driven. Now, before our listeners jump onto the bandwagon that uh, blindly glorifies the NHS, let me also caution that the NHS as we know it is collapsing currently. Both junior as well as senior doctors are on strike there, mm -hmm. not to mention their nurses and ambulance drivers as well. So back to decentralizing, it's a brilliant concept, maybe started off at the various JKNs, which is Jabatan Kesihatan Negeri or State Health Departments, mm -hmm. and then eventually rolled out towards giving hospitals the autonomy to determine their own staffing needs. This would only be made possible once we have the data for reasonable norms. Uh, encompassing all major departments such as medicine, surgery, ops and gynae, pediatrics, orthopedics, anesthesia, emergency department to name the major departments where house officers go and get their training. Mm -hmm. That could be the starting point. We are then able to map out how many medical officers or even specialists are required at each department in each hospital. It's data driven. And this mapping could also be used at clinic kesihatan or health, mm. health clinics. For example, uh, one doctor is needed for to see 40 patients per day, which works out to about uh, five patients per hour. Mm -hmm. Now, if we do not map this, when, that's when you get an overwhelming where doctors don't even have time. The, some of the complaints had come up. The doctor never even felt my pulse. The doctor ne never even put a stethoscope on me, mm -hmm. right? Some of the grouses on the ground. That happens when the doctors are overwhelmed and they hardly have five minutes for each patient. But when you map the service and you say that, okay, one doctor sees 40 patients per day at an outpatient clinic, which works out to about 12 minutes per doctor, then, you know, whether the posting and allocations of uh, medical officers would be based on workload norms that set at the national level and follow through at the state level. Once again, data-driven postings or allocations. And the state would be more well-versed with uh, human resource and staffing needs, whereas the federal government would have all the details needed for funding. Mm. Do we know, Dr. Siva, if this data is available at all to state authorities or the federal government, or is it just not being used? Um, with the limit, limited uh, information that the MMA has, mm -hmm. uh, we have been informed that a few departments, uh, such as the pediatrics department and the uh, ops and gynae department, as well as the anesthesia department, have already mapped out. And if you mm -hmm. were to call up their heads of services, for example, they would be able to tell you exactly how many medical officers are needed in 
each government facility throughout the country. So what's needed moving forward is all departments are supposed to map out services and uh, then uh, we can embark on um, state or even hospital autonomy. Mm, all right. So essentially, I guess the, 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 the ideal when it comes to decentralization is that the federal government can help to coordinate funding, but then the state authorities would have some decisions over human resources. Is that right? Absolutely. Mm. Are there things that can and can't be centralized if we sort of want to break it down along that path? Because I think we are so used to thinking of everything being under KKM, right? I think if we sort of break it down, you know, what, what is possible, what isn't possible? Okay. Um, when we talk about decentralizing, for example, transfers within the state, mm -hmm. as we know, within like um, a state like, for example, Perak has got a tertiary hospital in Ipoh, and, uh, you know, a district hospital with specialists in uh, Telo Intan and Taiping and mm -hmm. Slim River. Uh, so transfers within the state as well as uh, human resource needs can be decentralized. However, it would be prudent to involve and have input from senior clinicians, uh, such as the heads of uh, service or the heads of state when transferring medical officers, because mm -hmm. they know the the requirement in mm. each of these hospitals. And uh, when it when we talk about what's uh, a bit more challenging to decentralize, that would, as you rightfully pointed out, would be funding for now can't be decentralized. However, it would be great to have a strong input from the state health departments based on data as to how these fundings should be allocated and not... Um, send funds or human resource to the ones that are making the loudest noise or capturing headlines, for mm. example. Mm. So when it's data-driven, then it's transparent. Mm. All right. Um, if we continue to talk about the workforce issues, this is, again, one of those really ongoing discussions. Um, we Malaysia's healthcare system is essentially built based on what the NHS system was. And like you said, we're already seeing cracks within the NHS system and we don't want Malaysia to get to that point. What long-term solutions would MMA like to see for us to resolve workforce issues, things like shortage of house officers, medical officers and specialists, um, especially in the long term? Um, in one word, funding, in two words, kekangan kewangan, <laughs> which means the same thing. But anyway, uh, the MMA appreciates, uh, as we have stated, that about 20% of the appeals have been approved. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a, a very substantial number. And we thank the Ministry of Health for that. And we understand that circulars have to be adhered to when transferring doctors and the general orders are there for a reason. However, we would like to appeal uh, to the administrators to consider one-off allowances when transferring not only doctors, but also nurses, pharmacists, and even teachers. Um, the contract doctors becoming permanent and hence facing these unprecedented issues is a rather new phenomenon, mm -hmm. right? We have not had it in the past. A little bit of compassion when handling the current situation would go a long way in placating those affected. And other long-term solutions should include a revision in policy so as to enable all benefits enjoyed by permanent doctors to be enjoyed by contract doctors as well. Because I'll give you an example, Suen. Mm -hmm. When the word contract is hanging over a doctor's head, right? Mm -hmm. um, they are not even able to take bank loans, for example, because mm. there's no guarantor. 
you're a contract doctor. So what the MMA has always advocated is um, a revision in the contract system whereby house officers are there for given a contract of two plus one year. That plus one is for those having health issues or go off on maternity leave or they are extended uh, you know, for further learning. So two plus one for house officers and seven to eight years, a one-off contract of seven to eight years as a contract medical officer would provide certainty towards career progression mm. instead of two years and then you're not quite sure what happens at, at the end of two years, whether my career pathway to specialization would be facilitated. You know, it's it's too many question marks in the process. Mm -hmm. So a one-off contract for medical officers in, for seven to eight years would placate the junior doctors and they would be they would have that reassurance that if I were to embark on a specialization program, my contract is there to see me through for the next seven to eight years. And specialization programs take about uh, four to five years at least. Mm -hmm. A transparent selection criteria for the permanent post um, where the MME um, had already uh, submitted this to the Ministry of Health. A proper mapping, as I mentioned earlier, of staffing needs throughout all hospitals. We believe that some specialities already have this in place, as I stated earlier. A sensible remuneration for all healthcare workers. Uh, recently, Singapore bumped up their pay scales. Of course, in uh, no way am I suggesting that we mimic Singapore's healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But these are pointers, you know, whether it's uh, Singapore or Australia or New Zealand, where we need to look at sustainable development and learn from what is collapsing in the NHS. Mm. I mean, there are very good areas within the NHS as well, but we need to have a balance because uh, Malaysia's healthcare system is very unique in the sense that it bridges the public and private healthcare uh, provision very nicely. Mm -hmm. So that's something that not many countries can boast of, but Malaysia is fantastic in that. Um, and I would like to state that the system is larger than, than any individual. So once we get the system right, it naturally makes the individual follow suit. So, you know, and the MMA is always um, approachable and we always give our input to the Ministry of Health to uh, make the system uh, better, not only for our doctors, but also in patient care. Mm. It's... And all of this would eventually help us to address issues like brain drain, right? I'm thinking because we're talking about we've been talking about how we've had doctors leaving our country, and and every time we mention the NHS, I've also heard the same thing from doctors there in the UK leaving the country as well. And really, we don't want to lose any more trained um, healthcare professionals right now. Absolutely, and it's interesting that you bring that up because whenever someone talks about brain drain, I'm reminded of uh, Prof. Uh, Dr. Adiba Kamarusaman, mm -hmm. who tweeted and uh, you know made news when she said uh, a few months back that every year, uh, UM itself, University Malaya, where she's based, loses about thirty doctors to Singapore. Mm -hmm. Right. So, if that isn't raising alarm bells and you know, she stated that a few months ago, but that's been happening for the last 10 years. And as I pointed out earlier about the hospital Tenat, which was a finding by Jabatan uh, Audit Negara, 
that was in 2019. Mm-hmm. So all these are alarm bells already ringing. And it's about time that all stakeholders uh, led by the Ministry of Health, uh, aided by the Malaysian Medical Association, sat together and came up with solutions. You know, it, we, we can no longer be at a phase where we are firefighting and, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, patch Adams with the plaster. <laughs> we are past that already. So mm-hmm. solutions need to be rolled out. Mm. All right. Um, I want to round up our discussion today, Dr. Siva, by touching on the state elections. You know, I mean, we can't really avoid that. It's coming up. Everyone's talking about it. But interestingly, with, with state elections, I guess health and well-being issues are often not the, the central aspect of campaigning, of manifestos, um, because much of the decision-making lies with the federal government, right? But um, because we're also talking about the possibility of decentralizing today, Dr. Siva, I guess, what would you, what would MMA like to see from um, whoever the new state governments are, whoever the new elected representatives are, in terms of doing their bit as adons, as as um, elected representatives, to um, help improve our healthcare system, especially at the local and state level. It's interesting that you pointed out that they don't use health issues to campaign and in their manifestos. Mm, uh, in a way, I'm quite glad that they don't because personally mm-hmm. i feel that healthcare and might i say education as well mm-hmm. should always remain apolitical the people's health needs and welfare should be everybody's concern and if i am not mistaken mm-hmm. uh, we have about 5 doctors uh, in the cabinet in the malaysian cabinet we have 5 doctors um so it was indeed reassuring to see the health white paper passed in parliament. Uh, the PM definitely has his heart in the right place with the Madani medical scheme, the PERCA B40 for health screening, as well as the mobile health clinics are all timely and bodes well for our people. Now, if only we could channel some of that compassion towards the caregivers as well. Mm. You know, I've given you sound bites about what uh, Prof. Adiba Kamarozaman has stated uh, with regards to brain drain. I've also highlighted the hospital Tenat audit by Jabatan Audit Negara. So the information is all there for everyone to see. What we do with that information is the question uh, of the day. I would think it's the million dollar question. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Dr. Siva. Thank you, Suen. I've been speaking to Dr. Siva Balasavaratnam, Vice Chairman of MMA SCOMOS, and we've been discussing the recent relocation exercise of medical officers. And from there, what we really need to do to improve, to find a long-term solution to our health workforce issues. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Health & Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.